It's good to see everybody today. If you're a guest, I'm Dave, and I'm the pastor. We're so glad you're here. A little over four years ago, we moved out to this location. This is only phase one of at least two, if not more, phases. Our second phase is more than doubling our square footage. It's not going to, we're not going to move into phase two anytime in the next few weeks, I guarantee you that. So, uh, we, you know, we're faced with the needs of growth, things we've got to do. Um, six months ago, we started a 36-month capital campaign to help with phase two called Impact. Uh, Impact, we uh, committed or had pledged $1.2 million. Uh, six months into it, we received $600,000, almost half of that. So we're thankful for that. Uh, there's still a lot of work to do. But part of the issue we have, if you look around, we, you know, we're pretty crowded. In a couple weeks, Easter, this, this service, uh, the year before pandemic, had 390 people in it. It holds 380. We have 350 chairs out, and at 275, it's full. And so that's a lot. So one of the things we kind of encourage you to do, if you can, uh, on Easter, come at 12:15 service. It's going to be a full service. Uh, also, arrive on. Don't if you come late, you ain't going to get a good seat. You're going you're going to be sitting right down here, right in front of me, where I can look at you. So one of the things that we're faced with and challenges we're faced with is this service becomes full. Basically, we have four services. One service is a uh, traditional and three contemporary. Once a service maxes out, basically. Uh, then all you're maxed out completely. I mean, you, you don't, people just don't go to other services unless you create a reason. And so we're going to do some things to try to help, you know, create reasons for people to go to other services. The last few weeks we had a couple of uh, surveys given out. And so starting Easter Sunday, our 12:15 contemporary service, which is normally kind of a shorter service, it's an acoustic set, doesn't have all the music, we don't have upstreet. Starting Easter Sunday, it's a full service from here on out. It's, it's full band, full everything. We're going that way. And then uh, they don't know it yet, so don't tell those 12, 15 people that yet. So we haven't broke that news to them. And then starting May 1st, we're going to have Upstreet. And so the, at, starting May 1st, 12, 15, Upstreet, Wamba, everything, we're good to go. And uh, some of uh, y'all indicated this service. You go to the 11 o'clock service that had something for the youth. And so starting um, May 1st, youth will meet at 11 o'clock also over there right now. Youth meet at 945. Our big youth time, by the way, Sunday nights. That's when youth really meet. But we meet off campus. And starting uh, May 1st, at this hour, middle schoolers will come over here and meet in uh, the conference room. High schoolers will still meet over at the game. Uh, it's nothing quite like saying, high schoolers, go to the bar across the street and uh, have Bible study. To make all that happen, we have to do something we did two years ago before the pandemic hit. Before the pandemic, uh, our Sunday adult Bible studies, any of those classes we have, most of y'all belong to connect groups throughout the week, but the Sunday adult classes met at Donna Anna Community College. And starting May 1st, the adult, Sunday, the adult Bible study classes will once again meet on Sunday, will go over to Donna Anna Community College. Now, that's all I'm telling you because I don't know anything else. All the details will come out on uh, uh, the website, social media announcements and all that. I don't know. Don't ask me anything else because I don't know. I'm not going to know it. My job is to make decisions. My job is to not make those decisions happen. There are other people who will make that happen. It ain't me. I've done my part, so that's what I got to share with you on. If you're a guest, we're so glad. We want you to always feel a part of what we have going on. We're in a, a sermon series entitled Breakthrough. Uh, it began the very first of the year. And it's going through the end of this month. And if you've come at all, you know what, probably what I'm about to say, especially if you come almost every week. But it's important that anyone who's new, if they're a first-timer, kind of get this. Mark wrote an account of the life of Jesus. Breakthrough is a look through Mark's account of Jesus. Uh, when Mark wrote it, about 58 to 60 A.D., right in there, there were no accounts of Jesus' life available in written form. In fact, there were just a few letters that Paul had, one letter by James 
There just hadn't been all the stuff we call the New Testament. They were forming the New Testament. They hadn't written it yet. And uh, because Jesus had been gone, he'd be ascended 30 years earlier. And because a lot of folks who were a part of the life of Jesus and ministry were dying off. And because Christianity was moving from being primarily Gentile, Jewish to primarily Gentile, Mark wrote an account of the life of Jesus really to help Gentiles. He wrote that account to provide a breakthrough. And he went to Peter and he got information from Peter to help him do that. Now today, we're in the 14th sermon from this series that goes through the end of the month, titled Breaking Towards the Cross. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14 and Mark chapter 15, looking at parts of the trial of Jesus before the actual crucifixion, which we'll see next week. And this is the thing from the message today that I want you to really get from it. It's this. Jesus was crucified because of who he was. It's not that complicated. When all is said and done, <clears throat> from the perspective of people, of humanity, of the people who were there, they crucified him because of who he was. So I'm going to get the sermon today uh, just talking about the inevitable. It was inevitable that Jesus would go to the cross because that's why he came. We have seen earlier in the series, at least three times Jesus told his followers, listen, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going, to be die, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise again. I mean, going to the cross last week when we looked at um, the Garden of Gethsemane, we saw Jesus, you know, completely submitting to the will of the Father, knowing that he had to take on the sins of humanity. He had to take our sins upon himself and be basically separated from God. That had to happen at the cross. Now, the, the issue at stake in so many ways was from the perspective of a conflict. And one of the things that, that I've really tried to focus in on, on the Gospel of Mark is to help you understand the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders without going into all of that, which I've covered numerous times and who all those religious leaders were. These were these guys who had created for themselves a sense of authority. If you go back to the Old Testament times, it was a very simple faith based on faith. The faith of Abraham, Moses, and David. People worshiped God. They repented of their sin. They worshiped only him, and they obeyed him. It was a simple faith. By the time you get to the Jesus, they had created this complex system. And the authority of the religious system rested not in what you see in the Old Testament times, but upon these men who took authority upon themselves. It was no longer God and his Old Testament or the scriptures that were the authority for us. It was these guys. They created themselves as the authority. And, and so there was just an inevitable clash between Jesus and these guys. And it led eventually to the cross. Now, what you have in all four Gospels, a huge focus is on the trials of Jesus, the trial that he had. There's, there's two parts to the trial of Christ in each of those two sections. And each of those sections have three parts. There's the Jewish part, and there's Jesus before a guy named Annas, who was the former high priest. You see that in the Gospel of John. Matthew and Mark and Luke don't record that part. Then you see Jesus before the Jewish rulers, their leaders, on two occasions, one before dawn, one after dawn. Then you see the Gentile part, the Roman part, where he goes to Pilate, and then Pilate sends him to King Herod, who was kind of the Jewish administrator, but he still worked kind of for the Romans over that area. Uh, he called him a king, but he wasn't a king in the classic sense that we think of it. Uh, his account of, of Herod is only in Luke, and then and back in front of Pilate. And so that's kind of what we're going to go through parts of that kind of quickly. In um, Jesus, he goes to a guy named Annas. Annas was the former high priest. 
when Jesus was a young, young guy, um, but he still was powerful. He had five sons that were high priests. The current high priest, Caiaphas, was his son-in-law. Eventually, his grandson would be high priest. He was, kind of the, he was kind of lurking in the shadows. He was the guy. He was the power wielder behind all of that. He goes to Annas, and then he comes to Caiaphas. And he comes to the Jewish leaders, the rulers of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. There was 70 of them, 71 counting Caiaphas. And, and they met together uh, hurriedly before dawn, a group of them to kind of, to, to kind of get this thing rolling about crucifying Jesus. And they kept trying to find things to get on him. Witnesses come forward, nothing worked out. And finally, in verse 61, Caiaphas has enough. It says, but he that is Jesus kept silent and did not answer. And again, the high priest, that's Caiaphas, was questioning him. The idea of questioning now is a formal kind of accusation. He was saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Now, this isn't just a typical question, kind of like we have seen earlier, where they asked Jesus, should I pay, you know, taxes to Caesar, and, you know, and, and, and why are you doing this? This was really kind of a statement of indictment. In other words, it was the idea of he was stating what Jesus was, was accused of, what Jesus had either claimed or others had claimed about him, and so this was kind of like the formal charge kind of against Jesus. You are the Christ, which is the Messiah. But he added to that, he said, the son of the blessed one. Now, the blessed one is God. And by referencing him as the son of God, he's basically saying to Jesus, either you or somebody who follows you or somehow it comes out, then you think you're God, the son of God, you're deity. And so you, you have this formal charge against Jesus. This is, this is not just a question. He's saying, this is why you're here. Is this all this true? And he's basically putting him under oath. And in verse 62, we see Jesus' response. He said, I am. Now, in the Greek language, this is a very kind of critical way of Mark that wrote this. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Mark took Hebrew, Aramaic, translated into Greek like they all did. And when he wrote it into Greek, he uses a Greek term that says basically, I, I am. It's an emphatic Greek term. It's not just saying, yeah, you got it. Yeah, you're right. It is like, yes, completely so. Uh, John uses it in, in a lot of occasions for different things. For instance, in John 14, 6, um, when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, John uses this phrase. The Greek is ego, I, me, I, I am. And Jesus is in essence saying, I and only I, me and just me. I'm the only one who's the way to God. So Jesus, when he says this, I am, I'm the one, Mark wants to emphasize that he is saying this explicitly. It's emphatic. And then he goes on and quotes part of Daniel 7 and part of Psalm 110 and basically says this, and you'll see the Son of Man, that's Jesus, the, the Messiah, that's just referencing of himself as Messiah, sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In other words, I'm going to be with God because I am God. I'm the Son of God and I'm coming with the power. And so Jesus is not only saying, I am it, you're right. But one day you will see it. Now, he's given plenty of evidence that he is all these things, that he is the Christ, he's the Son of God. And they've ignored it. But he is saying, you're going to see. It will be evident at my coming. Verse 63, now tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of any witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. This is the, this is the one thing against the Jew that, out, that outdid everything else, committing blasphemy against God by claiming that you are God. How does it seem to you? And they all that were there condemned him to death. They said he deserves to die. Now, 
Let me just say this about the Jewish ruling council and how many were here and how many will be in the second phase. There were some men who were in that authority of the Jews who were going to be, or if not already, followers of Jesus. Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the God so loved the world, that Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea, who the gospel said would take and bury Jesus. Maybe one or two others. And so not everyone was participating in the death of Jesus. We, we need to understand this was not something that they all would have agreed upon. But for the most part, this is what they did. Now here's, here's the thing you need to see. The threat to these guys was Jesus being the authority because they thought they were the authority. They had an authority that they had created for themselves. Not that God had created. Not that the scriptures created. They had created. And so Jesus is standing before them. And basically they're saying, you're, you are accused of saying that you are God. That you're deity. You're God in the flesh. You're the Messiah. If that is true, do you understand that Jesus is the authority? The ultimate authority over everyone is God. There's no one who outranks God. Certainly not the religious leaders. And in their own religious system, as corrupt as it is, they would know that God outranks everybody. So if Jesus is truly God, he outranks them by their own authority, by their own system. And they can't have this. And so they condemn him a blasphemy worthy of death. Now, they've got to get the rest of the, of the Jewish rulers counseled together. They've got to get the rest of the guys in on it. So a little bit of time lapses. In that little bit of time... You have Peter denying Jesus. You see it in Mark. You see it in all the Gospels. He denies Jesus. And then we pick up after he denied Jesus in chapter 15, verse 1. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council, they got everybody together. Now, there may have been a couple of guys missing, but it, it'd be like saying, we got the whole place filled up. Well, there's a couple of empty seats. We're always going to be a couple of empty seats. They got everybody together. It was after dawn. And immediately they held a consultation. And ultimately from that consultation, they condemned Jesus to death. And binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. So here are the Jewish authorities. These guys say, we're it. We're at the top of the food chains in terms of authority. But here's what they can't do. They can't kill Jesus. They have to appeal to another authority. And here it gets kind of ironic. Because the only ones who could put Jesus to death were the Romans. <laughs> you understand? The Jews hated the Romans, and they hated being under the Roman authority. I mean, there's always this underlying threat of revolution. In fact, within about 10 years after Mark writes his gospel, the Jewish nation is destroyed by the Romans. Jerusalem's destroyed. The temple's destroyed because they rebelled against the authority of Rome. It was always there, and they had to go to this guy named Pilate. Pilate represented Rome. He was, for our purposes, the governor there between 26 and 36 AD. He didn't even reside in Jerusalem. He hated the Jews. The Jews hated him. He lived on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in uh, Caesarea on, on the coast. But he would come for big events. Because what was important to Rome in Jewish life was simple. Pay your taxes. Every government wants you to pay your taxes. It's always important for government to pay your taxes April 15th is coming. I was working. <laughs> Last night I worked on my sermon, and then I worked on my taxes, hoping that because I was just with the power of God, he would make all my taxes go away. <laughs> he didn't, but I did, so go think of that. So <laughs> let's erase that from the video. I'm just kidding. I'm going to pay all of it eventually. They keep, pay your taxes. Don't cause trouble. And uh, just admit Rome is the authority of your life, and you're fine. You had a lot of freedom. They had a lot of freedom. 
but that wasn't enough. The Jews wanted to be free, so they had, they had to come to Pilate. And all Pilate cares about is that the Jews don't cause trouble. Now, Pilate's not stupid. He knows about Jesus. He gets this idea somehow that Pilate just learned about Jesus. Hey, Pilate was the governor of the area. He knew what was going on. He had guys all over that part of the world telling him what was happening in Galilee and you know, in Jerusalem. He kept track on everything. He knew that a few days ago Jesus had made his triumphal entry in. He knew all that stuff about Jesus. So this guy knows what's going on. He also knows this, that Jesus is no threat to him. He's not worried about Jesus, but the Jews are. So they bring him to Jesus, and they start with all the formal stuff. And then in verse 2, so Pilate asked him, or Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? Now, this is, this is kind of Pilate jabbing the Jews, because Pilate didn't care if he was king. Well, I mean, Jesus didn't have an army. Pilate knew he didn't have an army. He was no threat. The king of the Jews was Herod. And Luke tells us that Pilate and Herod hated each other until after Herod questioned Jesus. Then they became friends. But Pilate didn't care if it was Herod who was the king, Jesus was king, Fred from across the street was king. He didn't care. As long as you paid your taxes, it didn't cause trouble. I mean, that was the thing. And so he's kind of poking the Jews. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say, or you said it. You said it. You're saying am I the king? Jesus replied, you said it. When this occurs, the Jews respond. Verse 3, the chief priests began to accuse him harshly. I mean, they were indignant. They didn't want anyone thinking he was their king. Now, the irony of all this is that he really is the king. But not just of the Jews. He is the king of all humanity. He is the king of all kings. The king of all kings was standing before the representative of the most powerful empire in the world, governed by a man who wasn't simply a king, but he was the emperor, the Caesar, named Tiberius. But Jesus really is the guy. He's the authentic one. And they're accusing him of everything, of treason, of telling people not to pay taxes, of all this stuff, none of which is true. And Pilate knows it's not true. Verse 4, Pilate questioned him again. Do you not answer what they're saying? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, and Pilate was amazed. The idea of being amazed is important because Pilate, he looks at Jesus, and he's stunned that he doesn't reply. This guy is different in what you have in Jesus that Pilate has never experienced before in anyone is authenticity. You see, he really is the king. It, the fact that he's the king of the Jews is real. The fact that he is God is real. Pilate's not concerned about the authority of the Jews. He's concerned about whether this guy is somehow going to cause trouble or disturb the peace, and he's not. But he is the king. There's an authenticity to Jesus. Well, in the, in the way of the trials, Pilate sends him off to Herod, and Herod sends him back. In the meantime, Pilate knows this guy isn't guilty of anything. Now, now Pilate is always going to be after his own skin. He's a, he's a corrupt, competent guy. And so he doesn't want, he doesn't want, he can't have riots occurring. He can't have a disturbance of the peace because then Tiberius Caesar will say, what's going on and yank him. At the same time, he doesn't want to just give in to the Jews because then they'll always be coming to him, trying to get them, him to do their bidding. And so he's kind of in this place where he knows Jesus is innocent. He doesn't want to kill Jesus. In part, he doesn't want to kill Jesus because he doesn't want to give the Jewish leaders a satisfaction, but he doesn't want trouble. So all these things are running through this, 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 the four Gospels that are going on. We also know in, from this passage as well, we're told that every year at the time of Passover, Pilate would release somebody that was a Jewish prisoner as a token of good favor. At that time, there were three guys who were going to be crucified that day. 
One of them was named Barabbas. Barabbas was guilty of every single thing that the Jews accused Jesus of. He was the insurrectionist. He was the rebel against Rome. He's the one who had an army, as evidenced by two other guys, can be crucified with him. So in the meantime of all this going on, the Jewish leaders get a crowd together. Now, the idea of a crowd is a group of people that come, and this is the part where most pastors like to say, you know, on Palm Sunday, you know, the crowd welcomed Jesus, and then five days later they wanted to condemn and kill him. Well, that's not true. The group on Palm Sunday, on the day Jesus' triumphal entry, was a completely different crowd. There were thousands of those people. They had come from all over the world at Passover. Many of them had come from Galilee. They had come, and they were proclaiming Jesus as king. This crowd was just probably around 100 or so. And the Jewish leaders got this crowd together. So they were already with the Jewish leaders. This was all ready to go. So Pilate knows what's going on. You got this crowd. You got this releasing of a prisoner. So verse 11, here's what we see. The chief priest stirred up the crowd to ask them to release Barabbas for them instead. They want Barabbas released and not Jesus. And the crowd's doing it. And this changes things. Because now Pilate knows there's the potential for a riot. So in verse 12, Answering again, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with him who you call the king of the Jews? And they said and shouted and yelled, crucify him. Now, they, they, they want to crucify Jesus. Now, you understand, the Jews never thought any Jew should ever be crucified by Rome. And here they're telling Pilate, crucify this guy, whom Pilate says is your king. Crucify him. Verse 14, but Pilate said to them, what evil has he done? He's done nothing. And Pilate knows this. But they said all the more, crucify him and crucify him. We know from the other gospels as well that Pilate was trying to figure out a way to get out of this. And there really wasn't anything he could do. So verse 15 says, wishing to satisfy the crowd and everything's changed. Not the Jewish leaders, but the crowd. He can't have a riot. Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, and in Luke's account, the idea of scourging Jesus, I think Luke and or maybe John both, he asked if this was enough. They still wanted Jesus crucified. So he handed him over to be crucified. Caiaphas leading the, uh, the Jews and Pilate leading the Romans rejected the authority and the authenticity of Jesus. And Jesus broke to the cross where he had to go. They rejected him. And the reason they rejected him is not all that complicated. It's because of the threat that Jesus posed to them. To the Jewish leaders, he was a threat to the authority. Pilate saw the authenticity of this guy, but couldn't deal with it. And so they rejected him. And we still reject Jesus for much the same reason. You see, people reject Jesus today, like then, because he threatens their authority. He's a threat to us. He threatens us governing our lives. I, I, if you've come to this church and you've come at any time, you have probably heard me say who knows how many times. I say this constantly. Genesis 3, the very first sin, is the basic sin of all of life. All sin, the, the, the beginning of the sin DNA goes back to Genesis 3. When Satan says, you'll be like God. And Adam's like, sounds good to me. And ever since then, we want to be God. We want to be the authority of our life. And Jesus comes along challenges that authority. And people reject him. We want to live in opposition to God, being the authority of our life. And here Jesus comes to save us from all that, and we reject him. Understand, this is so important. The crucifixion of Jesus was the ultimate act of rebellion against God. Because here was God. They even said it. 
You're the Christ. You're the son of the blessed one. Yeah, I am. You're going to believe it or not. They rejected it. Pilate, I mean, Pilate knew. He's done no evil. There's nothing in this guy. He's the authentic one. But they reject Jesus and rebel against God. It was inevitable. Which brings me then to the second thing that I want to share with you. It's really a question. It's a question that goes to the heart of our life also. But why did they reject Jesus? I mean, I partially answered that, I know. But why did they reject Jesus? And so I want to share with you probably kind of two reasons and a conclusion about rejecting Jesus. The first thing is this. Jesus had authority. Basically, that's what it comes down to the Jews. He had the authority they didn't have. All throughout the account of the Gospel of Mark, it's about the authority, the authority, the authority, the authority of Jesus and him destroying their system. He was the son of the blessed one. He was the Christ. He had the authority they didn't have. His authority goes back to the Old Testament scriptures. His authority goes back to God. He had it. They didn't have it. And he challenged all the systems that the Jews had. But here's the thing. Jesus always challenges human systems. We create philosophies. We create concepts. We create religions. We create systems. We create constructs. We create all these things based on our authority. We come up with it. And we're happy with it. And Jesus crashes it. And because he crashes it, we can't deal with the authority of Christ. That's why people reject him. Because he says, Mark 8, 34, we preach from this passage. You've got to deny yourself and take up your cross. You've got to deny you. You've got to stop thinking you're the one in charge. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to deny us anything. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross. And then he has the authority to say, come follow me. And to follow Jesus is to give up our authority. And follow him. He has authority, but also Jesus has authenticity. He's the real deal. We're not the real deal. We're the frauds, not Jesus. He was the king of the Jews, the literal king of all kings, Jesus, right there in their presence. You know, people don't really have a problem with Jesus just being this great teacher. We hear that. He teaches well. He's an example. You know, I, I have found in my life, people don't even have a problem with Jesus being sinless. In fact, it kind of gives us hope. You know, if Jesus can do it, I can do it. Jesus was sinless. Man, I can do it. But we can't. The problem we have with Jesus is that when the sinless one went to the cross, we are told that he took our sins upon him. And we're like, whoa, 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 wait. I don't need Jesus to take my sins upon him. I can do it myself. I can make it right. You ever heard a little, little one say, I can fix it? And we're all like, no, you can't. And that's us. I can fix it. And the cross says, no, you can't. We don't have the realness. We don't have the authenticity to fix our problems. And that very first message that I preached to you, way back sometime in the early parts of January when we were all so much younger then, Jesus said, repent, believe the gospel. He said, you got to repent of your sins. And then you got to believe or have faith in me. And then he said, and come, follow me. 
because he is the authentic one. See, here's the problem. Here's what it boils down to why we reject Jesus. We don't want to follow Jesus because to follow Jesus is to admit you're wrong. To follow Jesus is ultimately to say, I am wrong. I was wrong the way I lived my life. I was wrong the way I thought I could worship. I was wrong about the systems I built. I was wrong in all the things that I did. Ultimately, I am wrong, and no one wants to admit they're wrong. But we are. And so people reject Jesus. And we reject him because of who he is. Who he is. So here's the thing. To reject Jesus is to reject who he is, the authoritative and the authentic one. That's who we're rejecting, the Christ, who is all the things you and I aren't. That's why Jesus didn't come to fix it, but to replace it and to bring you to him. So I began the message saying they rejected Jesus because of who he was. People still reject Jesus because of who he is. They don't want to admit that only Jesus can do what they cannot. Bring them to God. And so Jesus broke to the cross. And he broke to the cross so that you and I could break to him. But to break to him is to follow him. To admit that we don't have the authority. To admit that we don't have the authenticity. To break to Jesus is always to break to the cross. And if you don't break to the cross, then just like the Jews and just like the Romans, just like Caiaphas and just like Pilate, you reject him. And at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter why you reject him. You reject him. So the call for you today is to break to the cross and follow Jesus, to trust him with your life. To trust the one who has the authority and the one who has the authenticity to take your sin away and bring you back to God where you believe, to do what you cannot do. But to do it, you got to admit you are wrong. Some of you today need to do that. Some of you today need to give your life to Jesus and trust him to save you. Some of you who are followers of Christ, you... You need to quit living as a follower of Jesus like everything's okay. You still try to live like you got the authority and the authenticity of your life. And that's why you struggle so much in your faith. And that's why so many people look at you and wonder, what what are you? Some of you, your Christianity doesn't make sense because you keep living with your authority and your authenticity. You got to give that up. And some of you today, you got people you need to share Jesus with and to pray for. So here's the thing. In just a moment, we're going to have an invitation. Some of us are going to be standing here. An invitation is just a song we sing to worship God, to give you a chance if you want to talk to somebody or pray with somebody. Ladies, if you want to talk or pray with a woman, we should have another lady up here. You can do that. You know, you can join our church. You can give your life to Christ, whatever you want to do. Or you can do it where you are. That's fine. But understand this. Jesus broke to the cross for you. And you need to break to the cross for him. Lord, we are just amazed sometimes when we read the story of Jesus about who he is and what he did. And God, sometimes it just doesn't always make sense. It really doesn't make sense to me sometimes why you would love us who are so rebellious so much, you would love us to do this. But you did. 
You sent Jesus to die in our place, in our behalf. So God, in the name of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is my prayer that we would break to the cross, just like Jesus did. Only he broke to the cross to die for us. Let us break to the cross to follow him. In whose name we pray. Amen. And amen. Would you stand? We'll be here. And you come.